And we are live about five minutes early, but I'm trying to get the day wrapped up. Why the heck is our live stream starting at 2.30 in the afternoon? That never happens. Well, maybe there'll be uh, something good in it that some people who normally can't make a live stream will be able to. I hear from people all the time saying, I can't make your live streams, whatever. So, uh, But the reason is that I am uh, involved with a seminar this week. Uh, from Matt Powers, and it is a pretty awesome one. And I just completed a panel discussion on called Grow Food Now uh, with Chris Trump, Matt Powers, Stephen Reisner, and a gal named Rain who's involved with mushroom cultivation down in Central Texas. She was awesome. I just don't remember her last name. Uh, there'll be a link in the uh, audio notes or the audio version of the podcast today once it goes live on the blog about 30 minutes after the sentence where you can uh, sign up there if you want to. And uh, it's all free just to watch. And if you want, there's some advanced options and things like that. But if you just want to watch the presentations, uh, you can do that. He dropped the first round of them today. Then a round gets dropped every day until Saturday. And there'll be another discussion on Saturday that I'll be on live at 1 p.m. Central Time. So that's, that's why we're late today, later than normal, even though we started early on the timeline. With that, I do see people beginning to come in. So let's get into it. What are we going to do today? We're going to do a listener uh, question and answer show today. Mainly because those are easy for me to do, and with all this extra work this week, I got two presentations, two panels for Matt. Uh, it just made it easy to get through today, and I got a bunch of stuff for you today. I got an email from a gentleman saying, "Is is is all money really debt? You know, like when a bank loans you money, yeah, they create the money, but when you pay it back, isn't that new permanent money? No, no. And we'll talk. The reason I want to talk about this, I'm bookending the show today, and when you hear the last bullet point, you'll get that. But I want to make the point that I say all the time, and I don't think people really understand it. The system that we're under for monetary creation, the fiat system we exist in, fractional reserve banking, is a terrible system. It, and it appears incredibly complex on the outside. That's by design. But it's also so simple that when you do understand it, your mind goes, no, that, that it, no one would do that. Yes, they would. And we'll talk about why today as well. Um, I asked a question that I thought was pretty interesting to me. How dangerous could the rural parts of blue states become in coming years? So you guys have heard me say, get out of the Flashpoint City, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Seattle, Chicago, New York City, uh, Atlanta, et cetera. Get out. But what if you're in a rural county, out in the county, away from all this trouble, but you're in a blue state? I'll tell you why I'm less worried about you. There's somebody in a red state living in a large urban area, let's say like Dallas or Georgia's kind of purple, but somewhat red, and but Atlanta or, or what have you. There's a lot of these states that don't have a lot of this liberal lunacy as this total statewide thing, but their city, because cities create liberals. And, you know, there's the old saying liberalism is a mental disorder. I don't play both sides of the dichotomy and pretend to pick one. But the, the people that are clearly the most psychotic right now are the mentally deranged left. And so we'll talk about that a little bit. Then I got a question I've never even thought of before. This person, they make an awful lot of herbal tea and they're taking an herbal course. They're also taking my course on, on bioreactor compost and learning about the biology and compost and saying, wait a minute, a lot of these herbs have antimicrobial, antiviral. You know, and, and these different uh, herbal actions in them. 
that will uh, perform in this antimicrobial way, is it bad to use them in compost? I think the answer to that's no, and I'll explain why when we cover it. But I think it's an incredibly intelligent question. It, it requires thinking two different systems coming together. Will this affect that? And it's a very good thought process to go through. Uh, next, we have a um, person is asking me about getting started working out on a heavy bag because they heard that I do that. Some ideas for working out with a heavy bag, avoiding wrist injuries and things like that. Um a solution to a massive waste stream, making biochar from coffee grounds. An article on it. I won't really cover the article, but I'm going to give my thoughts on why I think this is a good thing. It's, and it's one way to deal with that waste stream. Um, how do you find the in-between when you're doing permaculture on a mid-sized acreage, say two to five acres, for people about worried just turning it into a jungle if they don't mow or whatever? We'll talk about that, and it's pretty much the same answer everywhere. Don't do more than you can do at any given one time. Um, and then we're going to talk about why the vast majority of wealth being controlled by a few people is 100% a feature of a fiat world. And, and this is an interesting discussion because it's one of the primary things used to divide people. you got poor people on the right defending the uber-wealthy, and you got poor people on the left or regular middle class people on the left going, hey, it's not fair that they're uber wealthy. And they've got 90 percent of the wealth in the hands of one percent of the people. But all of the solutions both sides come up with, I'll tell you why that can never work in a fiat world. And it's back to the original first bullet point. It is so simple that the mind repels the answer because the answer is so hyper asinine. Who would set up a system like that? Well, the people that benefit from it. But how would they get away from it? Because it appears complex and is so simple that it repels the mind, so the masses will never understand it, even though it's right out there in front of their face. Even though they publish documents to tell you exactly how it works. Your mind will repel things when they are stupid and simple both, and yet they're magnanimously huge. right? It's hard to believe that something as big as the U.S. economy, the global Economy runs on a completely stupid system and works, but it does. It's just who does it work best for? All of that and more in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today, John Pugliano with the Wealthsteading Podcast. You can find it at wealthsteading.com. John's a great guy. He's not just an excellent financial money manager. He is also a self-made millionaire who became a liquid millionaire through investing before he was ever willing to take a client. He does a great podcast called the Wealthsteading Podcast. You can find it at, guess where, wealthsteading.com, where you can do one of my tenets of modern survival, which is continue to improve at all times your financial IQ. Check John out. Great community member, been working with us since 2010. So he's certainly not a Johnny come lately, even though I guess his name being John, he is a Johnny. Next up today, Joel Riles with uh, K9 Academy, where you can learn to train yourself so that you can train your dog. Joel has a variety of courses that you can take. I recommend everybody take at least the K9 Academy Basics course because it's the core obedience and training mod, uh, uh, methods that you would use to train your dog no matter what you wanted them to do. If you want a protection dog, it starts with core obedience. You want a hunting dog, it starts with core obedience. You want a Livestock protection dog, it starts with core OB. You're starting to see a pattern there. 
every dog, no matter what, needs to learn to sit, to stay, to not kill things it's not supposed to kill, maybe to kill things it is supposed to kill, but it all comes from core obedience. So check out uh, Canine Academy today, and uh, Joel can help you out. Uh, because like most dog trainers, if you ask Joel, what's the most difficult species you ever have to work with, he'll tell you humans. Dogs are easy. Dogs work on rules. We have a whole system for training them. Um, you know, you it, it, it really isn't that hard to get a dog to do what you want to do, but it's hard to get a person to be consistent with the dog so the dog will do what the dog is expected to do. With that, let's uh, dig on into this uh, today. I, I want to uh, want to start off with this question and. Even though he was wrong, I want you to understand this was a very intelligent question. So with this gentleman, I don't remember his name. I'm working off just a bullet point list over here today because I'm discombobulated because I had to cram so much into the day already. But he basically said, hey, I, I get what you're saying about how the Federal Reserve creates money. I get what you're saying about how the banks print money as well. And for those that haven't heard that before, the short version is this. You go to the bank. You say, I want a mortgage for $300,000. They say you have to put up, I don't know, 10% and you put up 30. So they loan you $270,000. You think they took $270,000 out of their bank and gave it to you on a promise to pay it back, but they did. Your promise to pay it back printed $270,000. They made a journal entry and gave you access to it. And then your promise to repay created that money. And as it's paid down, that debt is destroyed. And therefore that money is destroyed, leaving the interest. So he got all that. He said, but in the interest, the real new permanent money. I mean, the bank loans you 270, you paid it back. That destroyed the money intrinsically because the debt went away. But you pay back, let's say, I don't know, a million dollars. You know, so uh, you end up with uh, $730,000 of new money if you let the interest rate and everything run 30 full years. Now, Where's that money come from that you used to pay? You don't create it. You don't create it. You go out and work for it, sure. But whoever paid you had to get it from somewhere. And if you trace it back, the origin of those dollars was debt. Somebody loaned money to somebody to create it somewhere. It could have been a mortgage like we just talked about that started flying through the economy. It's part of the velocity of money. It could have been a bond issued by the government purchased by the Goldman Sachs or a little old lady or a foreign government or anywhere else. But all money in our system down to every single penny. It was created through the issuance of debt. That is how our system works. If you read Modern Money Mechanics, which is put out, was put out years ago by the St. Louis branch of the Federal Reserve. It will explain to you exactly what I, so I said. They, this is not a conspiracy. It is not hidden from you. It is in plain sight. They tell you exactly what they do. Uh, quoting from memory, it is something to the effect of, of course, they, the banks, do not pay out loans from their deposits. If so, no new money would be created. When they, the banks, issue a loan on a mortgage, they are, in fact, writing a check that's backed by nothing. It's something to that effect right in their document. Now, again, I want you to think about that because I'm bookending this podcast. 
Let that percolate in your mind for the final bullet point today, which is why the vast majority of wealth being controlled by a few is 100% a feature of the fiat world. But it's very hard to accept that that's the way that it works. But, my friends, I'm here to tell you that it's how it works. It is how it works. Moving on. Well, yeah, yeah, we have this question. How dangerous could the rural parts of blue states become in the coming years, basically? And I don't know what exactly he means by that. There's this ethos going around right now. If they throw Donald Trump in prison before the election, there's going to be a civil war. If they don't let Donald Trump on the ballot, there's going to be a civil war. Or from the other side, if they let Donald Trump on the ballot, there's going to be a civil war. Right. Like no way out of it. There's going to be a civil war. I think that there's always going to be a civil war. There's always been going to be a civil war. I've been hearing I'm 52, 51 years old. I've been hearing this shit for as long as I can remember. There's going to be a civil war. I've seen this country go through way more turmoil as far as this type of thing than it's going through right now. And I think most people chant civil war, civil war wouldn't last one minute in a civil war, including people kind of raw, raw on it. They don't have any idea what they're asking for including a lot of veterans that think they're all badass. I've even seen some people say they don't understand. Some of us enjoy it. Well, you enjoyed it when you had a giant supply line providing you everything you needed. You wouldn't have that if you were actually fighting a war in your own country against your own people. So stop talking stupid shit. So I don't know if it's that. I don't know if it's just the economy going to shit because that is happening. I don't know if it's just generalized. Ter- I don't know exactly what's driving the fear-based question. It may just be Jack Spirico saying, get out, get out, get out. And it's just getting in your head and going, well, what about me? I live in a blue state, but I live out in the country, so am I okay? There's a couple things to this. You don't have to have a civil war to have problems. This is a big part of why I said get out of the flashpoint cities. When you have lots of people and lots of resources and lots of people competing for lots of resources and people willing to, to steal and to, to, to do harm to get resources, whether it's money or a big screen TV or anything. And you also add to it a law enforcement organization for the local area that either will not or is not allowed to do their job. You get into a very bad way. You get San Francisco. San Francisco, I don't care what anybody says, is one of the world's largest shitholes right now. When you have a place where I've been in business for 40 years and I've been a law-abiding uh, Keystone member of my community for 40 years and a homeless dude can shit in the front of my entry place into my shop and if I do anything to them, I will get arrested, but they won't, you have a shithole city. And that's just one level of shithole that is San Francisco right now. So I'm saying to get out of there. The problem is when you have hard enough times This kind of civil disobedience, breakdown, whatever you want to call it, happens everywhere. It's just where there's more people, there's more of it. It doesn't mean that there are not real problems, red state, blue state, I don't care, in rural areas. A lot of rural people are poor all the time, and then when bad times come, they're really poor, and they know how to do shit, okay? So there's a lot, for instance, there's a lot of drugs in rural America, specifically to a high degree, meth and heroin. And so when you get that, you get problems and you get crime. So there can be problems anywhere. So it's more about who are your neighbors, how are you all fixed up, how are you all working together, and how are you managing your protocols and procedures to make yourself as defensible as possible? Because I, I promise you, 
Well, I live way out here in the middle of nowhere, and they ain't coming here. Yeah, what about Billy Bob down the road? He'll steal your shit. He'll burn your house down. He'll assault you if he thinks he can get something from you. So I don't think there's any 100% getting away from it all. And I think whether your state's a blue state or a red state doesn't have a hill of beans to do with the potential for property crime, burglary, arson, all of this stuff. There's just places where there's more of it. And there's places where you taking an action to defend yourself and your property results in you getting arrested and the person that did it being seen as a victim. So that's my biggest problem with these blue states. A lot of these blue states now, yeah, you're out in rural counties or whatever. It doesn't prevent a state attorney general from filing charges on you. Think about, I don't remember their name now, the couple that during the BLM rights tried their ass off to hire a security company, and no security company would touch it because they knew what they were dealing with. And they lived in a beautiful gated community in St. Louis. Nothing's ever going to happen here, but it did. And the protesters went through the gate and started smashing shit and all. And these people were like, not my house. And they did what anybody should have a right to do. They didn't hurt anybody. They came out. The woman was armed with a pistol. She did look like a moron. I'll tell you that. And the guy had an AR. He looked like he had half an idea what he was doing. They had good trigger discipline. Never put their finger on a trigger. Just stood there and basically, if it's, it's going to cost you if you come into our house. And they were politically motivatedly prosecuted and convicted. Now, make things worse where you actually have to take an action. And the problem with the blue state is they have these prosecutors who will go after the person that defended their home. So what I'm looking for is a, if I have a choice, that is a state where that is not the case, where we do not have these politically motivated prosecutions against people just defending themselves and their property. I really want to be in a state that has a castle doctor. But as far as I know, Missouri has a castle doctor and it didn't matter to this bean brain. Who, who, who they put in charge. This is a bigger problem. I think we're getting to a point where we're having these types of people everywhere. It's not unique to blue state, red state. It's just worse in a lot of the Democrat controlled areas. But the, the problem with that, if you're not taking the additional steps to make sure that you're in a good defensible area, you're not attracting attention of these types of people you can, you know, do certain things to kind of send them out. This is not the place you're looking for. If you're not doing that, it can happen anywhere. And just because it's worse somewhere else doesn't help you. I was having a conversation on social media the other day, and I said it was 14 degrees out, and this person came on. Well, that's like November here. Right now it's seven below zero. So because it's colder where you are, it's not cold where I am. See how dumb that argument is? And it's a natural thing that we do with each other. This person didn't mean anything by it, but... I'm making a point. If you freeze to death when it's 14 or you freeze to death when it's seven below, does it really matter? It might take you a little longer to freeze to death if you're not sheltered in 14 versus seven below. It's a 21 degree uh, difference. You certainly can die faster, but you know, you get down below freezing unsheltered long enough. It doesn't really matter when you're freezing to death. So the fact that you're in a place with less crime doesn't really matter when somebody's committing a crime and shooting you to do it. So we have to think beyond just where you live. Where do you live? How do you live? And how do you defend your property? However, that said, any of these really deep blue states, I would not want to live in at this time in history. 
because it's only going to get worse. It doesn't mean it won't get worse in the red states, too. It's just going to get a lot worse, especially all you folks on that West Coast. Those people have made a decision to self-destruct for whatever lunatic reason they have. And no one in this country anywhere has suffered enough yet to understand the folly of their stupidity. I shared a video on Twitter and some other places recently. And it was when the San Francisco City Council voted to, to, to say there has to be a ceasefire and peace in Israel. And these people are, if you've not seen the video, it is, first of all, they all look exactly like you'd expect these people to look. Cringe AF, okay? Just cringe looking. They're all wearing surgical masks and they're stupid face diapers because it's San Francisco and one person sneezed too much, so we got to bring masks back even though that shit didn't work anywhere. Okay, and they just all look like people that lives of TikTok would feature. Okay, just to make sense with this, and they're clapping and they're so happy because they accomplished this big thing of the city council of San Francisco passing a resolution that tells Israel and Hamas what to do, as though they've accomplished something. And somebody said, "Well, Jack, are you following your own advice? You say to focus on what you control." Okay, so I'm not mad or emotional about that. I'm pointing out the danger. These are politically active people with significant amounts of power within the system that has empowered them. They're mentally ill people. They're the same people that, that are the reason for the 30 or 40-year-old shop owner getting arrested for pushing a man off his front stoop while that man was taking a shit while a customer was trying to get into his store. It is the same people doing this, and those people are everywhere. Those people are dangerous. It is Bonhoeffer's theory of stupidity in action. And if you've heard me mention Bonhoeffer's theory of stupidity before, but you never dug into it, I will. if I don't forget, I will add to the show notes for the audio side a link to a short video about five minutes long that explains it. And Bonhoeffer was a minister and a writer and a philosopher in Germany during the lead up and through World War II in Nazi Germany. And he wrote about this concept and basically said, stupid people are the most dangerous people in society. And he didn't meet intellectually slow. And I encourage you to learn about this because this is exactly where we are. Does that mean we're all of a sudden going to have a bunch of uh, 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 concentration camps and gas people to death? No. And there's a big problem when people make that jump. Because everybody shut, they shut you down and doesn't listen to you. When we draw the analogy to Nazi Germany, we need to understand the concept, right? The concept of we're in a flashpoint, a dangerous point, where things become an us and a them, and one side uses the power of the state to victimize the other. It won't. It will never look exactly the same as the last time that it happened, but it will have a lot of similarities, and the conditions that are necessary for it to happen are there in advance. So, two forest fires are never the same. They're always extremely destructive, and they always have the same conditions. It's really dry. There's a lot of dead tinder, dry tinder, ready to go. There's wind. 
and there's the potential that when the spark hits, the whole place is going to go up. And it, you know, two different forest fires in two different places look very different if you analyze them as, let's say, a fire marshal, but they have the same characteristics and the same type of destruction. And that's the place that we're in. And I really, really have to say that we are in a extreme drought, dry tender situation geopolitically in the United States right now. People are pissed. You want to know why the orange man just wiped everybody's butt out in Iowa? People that don't even like the man are voting for him because they feel like it is a middle finger to the establishment. It kind of is. But that's how angry people are. And it is a righteous anger, but it's often misdirected at the wrong people. You're seeing the play, the pieces on the game board is the problem, and you don't understand the hands that are moving them around. And you don't understand the people you think on your side, they're being the two guys playing each other. It's like, what was that movie, Trading Places, where they completely destroyed the one guy's life and build up the Eddie Murphy character as an investor, and they bet a dollar on it because it was a joke to him? It's like that. So you got to really think about where you are and how you're going to design your situation to be defensible and less about feeling good because your state's a red state. Because you can get your ass killed by a bunch of redneck meth heads in a red state just like a blue one. I'm sorry, it's just true. Uh, moving on, this was an interesting question for me, totally different than what we've been talking about. A uh, person makes a lot of uh, herbal teas. I guess they drink herbal tea the way I drink coffee or something, and uh, they have a lot of waste stream from that, and they're now they're taking this herbal course and saying, you know, some of these are, you know, antibiotic, antimicrobial, et cetera, properties of these herbs. If I put these herbs into the composting cycle, might they knock back the uh, the biology? Uh, overall, probably not. Now, I don't know. I would if you were making a compost of nothing but like four extremely antimicrobial herbs, it, it might take a lot of time for this to be fixed. But if you're incorporating that into a general rate, uh, waste stream, uh, all things rectified. Um, you'll also notice that like. You know, they don't tell you, like, well, don't drink a teammate of this because it's going to wipe out your entire, entire microbiome. Most of these antimicrobials tend to uh, wipe out things that we pretty much don't want really around anyway. Uh, though when you get into the things that are antibiotic, right, they, they tend to kill bacterium. And, and you probably could, but I wouldn't worry about it. The other side of it, again, though, is I wouldn't exclusively use these things as compost feedstocks. And I think that one's that simple, so I'm going to leave it there and move along. Um, another guy emailed me, and he said, what if somebody wants to change their diet, but they constantly backslide? And this is what he meant. You, they make this decision, I'm going to go keto, I'm going to go carnivore, I'm just going to go all natural foods, no seed oils, no garbage, no crap. Somewhere around three, four, five, six o'clock every day, they break and they eat something that they shouldn't. Okay. Great question. Because you're acknowledging something whether you know you've acknowledged it or not. Food, specifically, the combination of high amounts of sugar, which all carbohydrates are, with fat is a drug as far as its physiological properties to the body. It is why if you 
let's say you sit down to a meal at a nice restaurant. They bring you out a big, beautiful ribeye steak and some asparagus and a little side of greens. You don't need any bread. You don't need any carbohydrates at all. You are perfect ketovore. You eat that until there's a little bit of that. It's a big old tomahawk ribeye. You can't even finish it. You push it to the side, ask for a box, take it home, whatever. You're done. They wheel the dessert cart over there, and there's a piece of cheesecake on there with some strawberries on it. You're like, well, I could eat a little bit of that. You just pushed away the rest of your, and you're going to eat that. Why? Because the human body is hardwired that if you find high sugar, you eat it because it's rare in nature. It's rare in nature. All this shit, when you go to the grocery store and see all this natural stuff that's high in sugar, like apples and grapes and all, if you look at nature before man started selectively breeding, there's not a lot of stuff in nature that's high in sugar readily available, especially year-round. So you might be at a place like figs are wild and in nature, so figs are super high in sugar. Yeah, but you don't get figs year-round. Even in the tropics, you get flushes of production. So as human beings... When you can't go to the Piggly Wiggly or Albertsons or whatever, whenever you want more food, when we lived in our native natural state, we needed during the fat of the year to put some fat on. And that fat went onto our body and it was our main reservoir of our main immunization or uh, immune boosting hormone, which is vitamin D3. And then through winter, we would lose weight release the D3 in our body when we were not getting solar radiation, being able to produce more as a battery. As we'd get into spring and things would come around, we would start eating again and putting some weight back on. And this is a very healthy cycle. As soon as you can go to the Piggly Wiggly or the convenience store or whatever, or stop at fast food place, then it all goes to shit because that's where you're at. Now you can just eat whenever you want, but you will still have this hard wire. So the person that breaks and eats a Twinkie, maybe it's not a Twinkie for this guy. I don't know. Just as an example, it is no different than the person that says, I can see alcohol destroying my life. I'm not going to drink anymore. And at 530 on the way home, stops at the bar for three martinis and picks up some more at the liquor store and brings it home with them. We look at that person and say this, that, that self-destructive behavior but we understand what's happening. They have drank long enough. They become addicted to a substance and dependent upon it. And when they're in any kind of stressful situation or whatever, or just as a matter of routine, when they want it, even though they know better, they break. Or a drug. You know, the person that's addicted to a drug, let's say it's heroin, they have a much more visceral physical response. But it's the same phenomenon. They've become addicted to it because it's hitting certain receptors and it feels good and eventually stops feeling good. It just takes away the sum of the shitty feeling or a person that's addicted to something like pornography. They become mentally attached to the thing and they say, I'm not going to do this anymore. And they go do it. So what is the solution for those people? This is 12 step program, right? Narcotics anonymous, alcoholics anonymous, whatever. And basically the 12 step program is way less important than being part of a group and having a what? A sponsor that says, hey, when you feel weak, call me. What if we treated diet that way? 
I think a lot of y'all that are involved in the TSP community, Telegram, whatever, that are trying to like clean your life up, and if even if it's just I, I'm, I'm eating garbage food and I want to stop, y'all need to be sponsors to each other. And you know, I'm gonna eat a Twinkie. No, man, don't do it. Go eat a piece of cheese. I don't want cheese. Then you're not hungry. It's amazing what having somebody accountable on the other end of things can do for you. But you have to treat this as an addiction because if you've made a willful decision, I'm going to eat better and every day or every three days or whatever it is, five times a week, you break five out of seven days. You're dealing with a bio, physiological and mental addiction that is part of your biology because you were wired by evolution to work this way. Because what's even more rare, remember I said high amounts of sugar in nature are rare. What's really rare is high amounts of sugar and fat available at the same time together. And if you think that's an, an overreach to make that statement, tell me where it exists. Where can you walk into the woods and eat high fat and high sugar at the same time? easily without expending an extreme amount of energy. And there's very rare situations where it occurs, right? Somebody's mentioning nuts. So if you have a large mass fall of a high-fat nut that's easy to open, at the same time that you have a mass fall of something like persimmon, well, that would be high-fat and high-sugar together at the same time. And you might even be a smart Native American and say, I'm going to take some of these fruits and some of these nuts and some of this fat from a deer and some of the dried meat and make a block out of it is like the original energy bar, and that's pemmican. But how much of it are you going to make? How how much can you make? And it's not that much as a whole. And so we're hardwired. When that magic moment happens, eat as much as you can, and you'll find you can eat more. That's why, Again, that's why you can eat that piece of cheesecake when you said, if I eat one more piece of that ribeye, I'm going to burst. Because we are biochemically made to do this. And you might say, well, then that's the way to live. No. This allows it. It is very rare. We've created an artificial society where we can have this indulgence. It's supposed to be a few times a year at critical points in the seasonality that we live in of the supply and demand system from nature, not on demand from a fiat world. And we broke it. Now, I'm glad we broke it to a degree because I think it's good that we don't all have to worry about whether we're going to eat this week or not. But then we have a a level of responsibility that goes with the food supply that we now have available to us to moderate it. So I think this person or anybody else needs to reach out and find someone that they can count on to act just like a sponsor for Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've had people, nobody's taken me up on it, but I've had a few people, and I'm talking real world here. Don't start emailing me, asking me to do this. Find somebody that you know personally to do this. But I've had a couple of people ask me about keto, blah, blah, blah. And I've said, look, I'll be your keto buddy. I've been doing this a while. I'm stable. You know, you got my number, text me. They don't do it. And it's admitting you have the problem, just like any addiction. So this person made the first step. They admitted the problem. Now, sir, it's up to you to find someone to hold you accountable. And you'll find the minute that that happens, the minute that happens, you'll have more willpower because the very act of speaking it and then being willing to be accountable to somebody else matters. That's why getting into groups and stuff helps if you're doing something like a 75 hard or something. 
of what was going on. And that was because I knew that if I was telling you guys what I was doing, that you guys would be like, Jack, what's up? You ain't been talking about it for a while. What's going on? And so until I got myself off that treadmill and got myself into a right place and, and took off like 40 of the pounds I needed to lose, I kept doing those videos all through that, that, that about six month period. Anyway, moving on. Um, it's actually the same guy, so I'm glad that he's asking these questions because it shows he's making an effort to improve his life. He asked me about a heavy bag. He said he inherited a heavy bag, I think, from his father-in-law or his dad. I don't know, but um, he wants to start working out, but he's never worked out with a heavy bag, and he's not sure how. How does he make sure he doesn't injure his wrists or his hands or what have you? Well, you definitely want a good set of heavy bag gloves to protect your knuckles. It is not overkill to wrap your wrists, but that's a personal choice. Uh, I will see if I can rem remind myself. Let's see. Uh, let me write this down. Bag gloves. And the reason I'm doing that is because the ones that I've got are have some pretty good uh, integrated wrist wrap support on them. And I can look up my Amazon purchase history and I'll try to add a link, but I'm not saying that they're the best in the world. I'm saying they just work for me. Um, but start soft and easy. And this is where I love doing this, but it's something that I have issue with. And I don't know if it's just I'm an aggressive person or whatever, but it's really a good idea when you're doing heavy bag workouts to not be going full bore all the time and to do a lot of kind of tapping, jabbing, probing, like you would in a boxing match. You're waiting for that shot. So not every jab, you know, is like full force, everything you got. You're waiting for that opening. The bag doesn't hit back, and it just sits there. So it's a lot easier to go full bore, and it is good for conditioning. But it will reduce how long you can go, and that will reduce the experience that you gain by putting the time in, the reps in, and developing your form and things like that. So definitely back the power down. I, I listened to a stuntman one time talking, and I don't remember why he was talking or where it was, but he was basically talking about people that want to get into that space. And this was more like a talk for life. And he said, but if you were smart you, and you wanted to learn how to fall off of a two-story building, you'd, you'd get on a, on a box that was a foot tall and you'd fall. And you'd learn how to fall that far without getting hurt. And then you'd go up two foot and you'd learn to fall without getting hurt. And then you go up to three foot. And at some point, it's really going to hurt. And you need to stop there till you figure out why and improve what you're doing until you can get up to that two-story fall and not kill yourself. And then he said, please understand when we do this, we have special equipment and you'll never do it on your own. Right. But he was making the point of you got to ease into things. And if you ease into things, then you find the point where things start to hurt you before they really hurt you. And so you definitely can jack up your hands, your wrists, whatever. And I have no idea what this guy's experience is with knowing how to deliver a punch or a throw or whatever. So uh, it, it's definitely something that you, you probably should, again, ease into. The other thing I would say is, you know, there's probably a boxing gym near you. And if you went down there and said, I want to basically use uh, bag work to improve my physical health. I'm not necessarily worried about climbing in, the, in the, the ring with anybody. I'm sure you could find yourself someone down there that acts as a coach or something that would help you with that. 
And that's not a bad idea because I've seen an awful lot of people doing bag work and it's just like, you're not getting anything out of that, you know, or these boxer sizes and stuff. And and you're like, come on, come on, like smack and you're knocked out. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And if you're going to do that, the beauty of bag work is that, you know, one good shot driven in properly, turning the shoulders and the hips and, and then the impact and back through the body. If it hurts, you're doing it wrong. Your form's off. But there is a certain jar and shock to the body, and it does tighten the body up. And it's not much different, except it's a different way that you work the muscle groups than, let's say, someone that rides horses all the time. If you know someone who, and I don't mean they get on a pony and go in a circle for a few. I'm talking about somebody like a guy that has a ranch, and he ain't switched over to four-wheelers, and he's on a horse a couple hours a day every day of his life, and he's been doing it for 10 years. I promise you, he's not mushy when you push on him. His body is firm and tight and hard because you're using all these different micro components of your muscles to maintain something. That's what heavy back work is. And what I like to do is I'll set up a routine like six rounds, a minute and a half a piece with a 30 or 60 second break, depending on where I'm at and what I want to do. And I play music and all. But my big issue is... I'll say, like, I'm going to go a soft round, a hard round, a soft round, a hard round, 30 seconds into the soft round. I'm full on just wailing the shit out of it because I like to do it. It's probably not the best practice because, again, what it does is you end up having a really hard time. You think 90 seconds isn't that much, but when you're really going at it, the, the cardiovascular and the muscle load both is extreme. And so if you just think about it, Punching yourself out is what it's called in boxing. People that throw too many blows and not enough of them actually do damage to their opponent. Eventually, those arms start coming down and get TKO'd. So it's the same type of thing, that you need to have some level of discipline in it. And don't think that if you're not beating the shit out of it in the beginning, that you're not doing well. You know, we say in martial arts, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. With boxing and hitting a bag, developing the form before you're going full tilt is what's important and developing the muscle memory. And again, as you increase the strength of those blows and you feel like a little pull in, you know, this part of your wrist or that part of your wrist or uh, up here in the top of your hand or something, yeah, you can push through that. But that happened when you were not full force. So if you were full force, you could have actually like had a trip to the ER maybe, or, you know, even if you're not there, you, you basically put yourself in a position where now you can't train for a week or two. So as you feel these pains, and I'm not talking about later on, you know, you've kind of wound down, you had a shower, or whatever, and you're kind of achy and everything. That's normal. But when you experience pain, right? You know, people, well, you're fighting. You got to understand. No, 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 fool. You shouldn't hurt. When you do a combination on a heavy bagger, you're doing it wrong. You're just doing it wrong. So that's that's my advice to get started there. Uh, next, and I and I look, I will say it is one of the best full body workouts you can get, and anybody can do it. You know, but the only place you can't really do it is in an apartment where your neighbor's going to call the management and get you in trouble. There's a lot of options with it, too. So hanging, that requires a place to hang from, and it can make a lot of noise depending on what it's hanging from. But there's also like what I use. I can't remember. It's made by Everlast. It has a base you fill up with sand, 
and it's like mainly for core work and it works really, really well without that jattering banging on hanging off of a, a, an upright of a building or something like that. Uh, moving on. So he sent me an article. I'll try to look it up. I'll write that down too. So maybe I won't forget it because I already forgot what the first thing was I was supposed to write down. It wasn't a bag gloves. It was something else I said I would do. Um, I'll try to add that article. And a basic concept was, Americans, we drink a lot of coffee. The Western world drinks a lot of coffee. The non-Western world drinks. Coffee is everywhere. And to make coffee, we roast a bean, and then we grind a bean, and then we take the ground bean, and we, we soak it in hot water one way or another, whether it's under pressure or, you know, something like a French press or a drip or whatever it is. And we make our coffee, and then we have just as much grinds as we started out with from a size, you know, a volumetric measurement. And then we throw it in the garbage. And it's a waste stream. Wouldn't it be great if we could do something with it? Now, I compost all our coffee grinds. I haven't thrown away a coffee grind since I can remember when I empty out my French press mug, I have a Tupperware container we keep on the counter for all our compostables. I have a little uh, mesh strainer, and I dump the coffee through it, and I knock the water out of it so it's not so waterlogged, and I throw it in there. And when that thing gets full, uh, any given morning I'm going out to the ducks, I dump it in my compost pit. It gets incorporated with everything else, and then that goes into my bioreactor compost, you know, once or twice a year. And so I'm not contributing to that waste stream, but a lot of people are. But to me, one of the highest things you can do with a good carbon source from a standpoint of regenerativeness with soils is biochar. And if you believe all the alarmism about CO2, you should love this because a third of any uh, of any uh, carbon in that material that's going to remain in biochar is locked up for thousands of years. It's the best way to sequester carbon that's known to man, and it improves the soil, and there's a lot of other uses for it as well. Well, since it is a, a plant source of carbon, that's basically what it is, and it's already halfway roasted, we can easily dry it and put it in a... Uh, a, 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 some sort of biochar kiln and and roast it in the absence of oxygen, which is kind of how we roasted it to begin with on some levels. But we can take it to that next level where we push all of the remaining gases out of it. We burn those gases off and we're left with biochar. Now, the beauty of this is one of the most labor intensive parts of making your own biochar is what? Crushing it. It's already ground. It's ready to use as soon as it's done. Now, I'm not sure that this makes sense for us to do at a home level, but there's probably a way that we could. But the article was coming at it more from a mass market product that we could take this. Wait, did you just think of the amount of freaking coffee grinds that are disposed of by Starbucks annually? Now, yeah, they do things where they'll give them to you or whatever, but most of that stuff's just thrown into the regular waste stream. If there was an apparatus, right, a commercial apparatus that said, we'll take it and we'll take all of it, then they would use it. A lot of these places would. 
and so there's just a massive waste stream. I mean, millions of tons a year could be converted to this long-term carbon soil amendment. Now, the only thing I don't know about this, and I don't know, I haven't done the research yet to find out, what is the quality of biochar made from coffee grinds as an agricultural soil amendment? It should be good, but it may not be as good as something like a hardwood or a softwood, simply because I've never seen what a, a, a small piece of biochar made from a coffee bean looks like under a microscope. Does it have the pore structure that makes it so valuable when it's made out of softwoods and hardwoods? And I, I just don't know that. But it's certainly something worth looking into. And if you're an entrepreneurial type person, what you're looking at is a product that would be a shortcut to produce once you skinned how to produce it. And, and biochar is an expensive thing. And there's plenty of market for it. So I thought that was a good one to put on the show today. Now, the next one is somebody asked this in one of my YouTube videos, uh, an old one. Actually, I saw it today, though. A comment came in. And, and here's the short version of the question. How do you find the in-between when you're doing permaculture on a two-acre, three-acre, four-acre, five-acre property? And I've got a three-acre property, so this is kind of in my wheelhouse. And it was a video that I published from the Urban Permaculture DVD by Jeff Lott. And so that DVD, I, I hate the term, term urban permaculture, by the way. It's basically small space permaculture. Urban's not the right term. Most people doing what is called urban permaculture don't live in urban environments. They live in suburban environments, right? Or they live in rural environments, but they live on a small piece of property because a lot of rural, like it's not like everybody with a rural house has 100 acres. Plenty of people that live in rural environments have half an acre, a quarter of an acre, a third of an acre, a tenth of an acre. So it's really small scale permaculture. And that's what the Urban Permaculture DVD by Jeff Lawton is. And it's one of the best things he's ever done. It's incredibly inspiring. It shows so many different systems. It's wonderful. And when you see most of these small systems, what people end up doing is they mulch almost every, they have a little lawn spot for the dog or the kids or something, but pretty much it's all made productive and it's all gilded and the gilding controls the growth. So they don't do much you know, lawn mowing or something like that. So a person with a couple, three acres looks at this and says, how the heck do I do that? The answer is you don't, you don't. Well, you do on part of your property, but not all of it. Everybody that wants to do permaculture on a property, I don't care if it's one acre or 10,000 acres, needs a zone one. And you treat zone one that way. You have paths, you have, you know, your paths are on contour. They are distributing water in your system. You have your recycling, your composting, your intensive gardens, whatever. If you want that, it's a very small, I don't care if you have 100 acres, your zone one is probably about the size of Bill's one, you know, one-tenth of an acre lot, and his whole thing is permaculture. And then you have to figure out how I'm going to handle the rest of it. So, three, you know, we have a lawnmower. I mow. I don't particularly enjoy it, but there's times when the ducks can't keep up with it. 
livestock is incredibly valuable on these mid-scale properties. Just you're probably not putting, you know, two cow-calf her, uh, uh, pairs on there. They can't support it. So, it, you know, something like sheep or goats or geese, geese or muscovies are great at um, grazing. The problem with muscovies is they're lazy and they'll just stay in one little area where geese will act a lot more like little cows. That's why I consider my geese like a little cattle herd. They, they, they go wherever the best grass is. I don't even have to move them much or force them. They kind of just keep moving around so that they're always grazing the top sweet parts of the grass. And I cut the grass here about three times a year. I mow here about three times a year. There's a couple spots that I might go mow that little spot or what have you, but we don't mow a lot because we don't have to. Now, part of it is our summers are so harsh, but, you know, our spring and our fall is massive growth, but the birds keep it most. So back to what Seth Poulter said, I remember one place I was at where he was speaking, and they said, well, he said what the pigs did on his farm to maintain the pasture. And the person put their hand up and asked him a question through a translator and said, but I don't want pigs. And he said, if you don't have a pig, then you have to do the pig's job. So when it comes to maintaining grass past your lawn, you either got to mow it or you got to graze it or you got to fill it with forest. There's no like cheat code for this. Like something has to be done when you put swales in, right? There's a space between your swales called the inner swale. Well, you can graze it, you can crop it, or you can fill it. You tell me what else you think you can do with it. Now, if I say grazing, you're like, well, you can mow it. That's that's a mechanical grazing. That's what mowing is. When you take a mower and you cut grass to a certain height and then you let it grow back and you do it again and you do it again and you do it again. And if you do it right, it actually can be very regenerative for soils. Don't cut it too low. Don't cut it too often. And as you cut grasses and forbs, as they grow back, they they actually become thicker. Right. So as long as we're doing multi-species in our in our little pasture, we can mechanically or biologically graze. We can crop it so that we're forced to maintain. If we're growing zucchini in there, we're not letting weeds go crazy and pasture go crazy. Or we can plant more perennials and turn the whole thing into a forest. Well, that's your that's the same answer when you have a three or four or five acre property. Everything that's not intensively managed, you can graze it, you can crop it, or you can fill it. The easiest thing to do is somehow to graze it because the animals take care of it. The animal is a valuable asset. The animal is contributing back to the system through a waste stream. Uh, but not everybody wants it, and I completely understand it. Trust me, this morning when it was eight degrees out and my fingers felt like I was in, like, like they were like having needles shoved into them. And I was out there filling the water tubs up for the ducks in, in that weather. I didn't want ducks for about 10 minutes. I came in, I put my hands around a warm coffee cup, and after 10 minutes, I wanted ducks again. But if I had to do that shit every day, I don't know that I would. And so I understand the person says, well, I don't want the goat. Well, then you have, and I don't want goats either. Goats make your life miserable, in my opinion. Nor I don't want Dorper sheep or, or, or St. Croix sheep or something like that. Okay, great. Then you have to do their job or you have to pay somebody else to do their job. So there you go on that one. Now, next... Let's come back and bookend this this episode today. If you have any questions, I've got two starred. One is from Eka Mouse and one is from John Ashworth. If you have any other questions for me today, now would be the time. 
please put the question, the word question in all caps. Or if you want me to comment on something, it's not really a question. Put comment in all caps and then put down whatever you have. And it, hopefully my one good eye, I'll see it and I'll start and I'll answer it after we hit this last one. I noticed this today. Uh, in, in several different places on social media, the old, tired, class warfare thing, the wealthy are getting wealthier at the expense of the poor. Uh, the problem with this discussion is nobody seems to want to identify the problem. So the people that are more leaning to the right or more toward the anarcho-libertarian agorist view will say people should be able to make as much money as they want to make. And I agree, except we got to we got to focus on the money. Then what is the money? And taking from somebody is wrong. Okay, I get that, but you haven't fixed the problem. the The person on the left that pointed out that two percent of people in the world hold eighty percent of the world's wealth are not wrong. That that is an inequity, and I know it might be shocking for you for me, to hear me use the word equity. Right, equity in of itself is a concept is not bad, but it can certainly be used to do horrible things. And it's one of the main ways the state has enabled itself to remain and continue to be the biggest mass murderer in history. So don't think I've changed my, my mindset here because I used a word that triggers you. But it is an inequity. And, and, and that doesn't mean that everybody should get the same amount of money. But the equality we're looking for is impossible if you've created an artificial inequity, and this is all enabled by a fiat system, the system that I said your mind is repelled by because it's too simple. It seems so stupid. It can't be that simple. So your mind doesn't want to accept it. They did it for a reason. If you know who would do it, the one that benefits from it. So I want you to think about this. The GMA Merkel says, thanks for having me back. I didn't do anything. I learned something yesterday, GMA. Um, when I ban somebody with StreamYard in the comments, I ban them for that live stream only. I don't ban them from my YouTube channel. So I looked, I was frustrated. I was upset. I was trying to find your name on the block list. that's in the back end of my YouTube channel. I couldn't find it. And, uh, it turned out I didn't have to do anything. And so hopefully the fool that was here yesterday where the thing jumped and I got you by accident, hopefully he doesn't figure that out. Okay. So anyway, the vast majority of wealth being controlled by a small number of people, well, it works like this. Who are those small number of people? You know, everybody wants to make it. Well, it's Jeff Bezos. It's Elon Musk, whatever. These, these people are incredibly wealthy, but they get into a class where they're able to access money. It's not the money they just made. It's the access and the access all along the way. It's called a cantillon effect. And the closer you are to the apparatus of power, the greater, the closer you are to the spigot that the money comes out of, the more of it you can get for doing the least amount of work or the more of it you can purchase, i.e. borrow at the lowest cost. Now, if I can borrow money, right? Think about this. If I can borrow money, for less money than I can loan it back out for. How much money do I want? Again, this is this is one of those your brain doesn't want to take this in. Because the answer is very simple. But I'm going to say it one more time, and you tell me in the comments 
give you a little time to catch up to it. If I can borrow money at a lower cost than I can loan it out for, how much money do I want to borrow? If I can borrow money so cheaply that I can invest it in any way that pays me more than the cost of the money, how much money do I want to borrow? Will somebody answer that question for me? Because it's three words that are incredibly simple, and I want somebody to do it before I say it. I'm going to give it just a little bit more time, and I'm going to ask it one more time. If I can, oh, there's, that's, that's the answer. Fisher Ken got it. I was just going to make it even more simple than what Fisher Ken said. The answer is all, there it is. Prep to Adventure got it. All of it. I want all of it. There is no amount of money that I don't, as long as I know I can make money on the other end of it, I want all the money. Okay, now let's think about this. If we have a class of people who have virtually unlimited access with a guaranteed incestuous relationship through, back through the Fed who gave it to them, in fact, many of them are members of the Fed, that guarantees me that I can take as much money as I want and I can loan it back to, if nothing else, I can loan it back to the government for more than I paid for it. I want all of it. So if the system is designed that every time money's loaned, new money is created, and the way the new money gains its value is by sucking value from the old money. In other words, let's make it really simple because the numbers, like trillions of dollars, your brain breaks. I think they figured out, like, if you took the day that they built the Great Pyramid and you were around and you made, like, $100,000 an hour every day, $100,000 an hour from then until now, you still wouldn't have as much money as we owe on the national debt. It's something like that. So you can't get your head around it. But let's make it really simple. Let's say there's only $100 in the world. And so everybody's using fractions of the penny for commerce. But I, because I have the powerful power to print money, just add $10 to the system, 10%. I just suck $10 of value out of the existing 100 Now all the original $100 are worth $0.90. Cents. That's basic inflation. Well, if I am the parasite class that can borrow money at will and always have a guaranteed ROI on that money, because the system is designed to give me one so that I will borrow it, so I will be part of the circulation. How will the person who I'm sucking value from their money every time I print myself new money ever catch up to me? But They can't. I don't care how well you do. I don't care if you end up being a you know, small-time millionaire. You, by the time you die and kick off, you leave your family $20, 30000000 million. You're still a mouse fart compared to the people we're talking about. Now, the trick is to make all the people killing themselves and never get to where you are think you're the rich person and they hate you and they not even pay attention to the man behind the curtain, which is what the freaking Wizard of Oz is actually about. That's why it's the golden road, and it was silver slippers, not ruby, okay? In the book, The, the Wizard of Oz, Dorothy had silver, sliver, silver slippers. She went down the golden road. With the cowardly lion, you can look up who that was in history. It was the, the crime of 1876 or 1863, something like that. The demonetization of silver. That's what that was about. And where did they go to? 
with the silver slippers on the golden road, what was the final destination? The Emerald City. Greenbacks. That's what the Wizard of Oz is about. It's about the lie of my, and that was before full fiat. And who was behind the curtain? The man behind the curtain ran the whole show, had no real power. The power rested in the people that were traveling the road the entire time, but they didn't know it. That's the fiat world. Now, why, if we had a hard money system, would you never end up with this amount of imbalance? Because the more money that was hoarded, which is the term they use to mislead you, by the uber wealthy, the more valuable the money of the average person would become. Now, you, even Jesus said the poor will always be with you. Okay? So there will always be poor and middle class and wealthy because some people are more talented. Some people work harder. Some people are more willing to do things. Some people are more disciplined. People that earn less money can end up far more wealthy in, in, in their middle age than people who earn far more money because they didn't have, just because they lack discipline. So there will always be an imbalance of wealth. That is a constant, and we shouldn't even think about trying to fix that. But we should try to make the game square as possible. Right? The game is fair and equitable. It's equal. It's possible. It's to opportunity. Okay? So, again, what, that, what happens now when somebody amasses a trillion dollars, they, most of the value of their money came from the money that you're trying to save. That's why you should get some freaking Bitcoin, I'm just saying. All right? So there's no way you'll catch up. And it's inevitable that whoever's in that 2% group will control 80% or more of the wealth. It, there's no other way that works out. You can tax them all you want. It doesn't matter. They'll just print more money with a guaranteed ROI sucking money from you. It doesn't matter how much you tax them. I mean, they're going to work the tax code. There's a million loopholes. A lot of the wealth that they claim these people have is in the form of stock in their companies. The only way to access the capital other than borrowing against it would be to sell the stock and tank the old lady's freaking 401k plan she's living off of. So when they say somebody's worth, you know, this person's worth $500 million, do they have $500 million of liquid cash? No. But in the end, they have the control of $500 million. No way around it at all. It's impossible for this not to occur. Ecomouse says, so the Democrats are the flying monkeys. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Not really one I was making, but I'll, I'll go for that. Um, now, uh, I want to go ahead and answer a few questions here, and then we're going to wrap up. So if you have any more questions, uh, ask them. King of Biltong, got your question. Uh, Ghoulie, one, two, three, four, got your question. Got the other questions I said earlier. I got nobody else, so let's go through what we have and ask your question now. It's late in the day. I need to wrap up. Ecomouse says, Jack, are you doing anything for negative 10-degree weather with 25-mile winds is challenging? Sure glad we are freezing at 30 degrees today. Okay, so it wasn't really a question. I just, I guess I thought it was. So you're basically saying, this is what I was talking about, how when somebody says to you, well, it's not cold where you are because it's colder where I am. It's a stupid statement. It really is. And but yet you'll be grateful for it, won't you? Like, 
I think it's going to be 28 degrees today, and tomorrow it's going to get up to like 40. That's not exactly suntanning weather, but it's going to feel pretty good compared to this. But we're going to be hitting teens for lows for a better part of another week at night. But you're you're correct, Eka Mouse. John Ashworth says, question, hi, Jack, any chance of a recipe book? I keep having a look through various podcasts for your recommendations as regards to keto recipes. Thanks for all you do. Um, I don't really have a recipe book, and I don't know that I, I, I plan on making one. And I will tell you, the longer I've stayed on this low-carb lifestyle, the less recipe. I was never a big recipe. As many of you know, I'm not a big recipe guy. You know, I'll, I'll publish a, 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 a picture on Instagram or something. It'll be like a stew we made. And I'll say, today we made venison stew, and we used some radishes in it instead of potatoes and some celery and some carrots. And somebody will say, what's the recipe? I just gave you the recipe, fool. Surely you know how to thicken gravy. If you're going to use flour, you use flour. If not, then you just cook it down, right? Or you use something alternative to thicken it up a little bit like mushroom powder would be a good idea. You're going to stay keto, right? Like there's not a lot of recipe to this. Now, if you're wanting to know how to make like keto pizza or something like that, making a fake crust, I just don't do that anymore. I did. I played with it a little bit when I got started. There was a lot of demand from the audience saying, Hey, I want something to, you know how I make keto pizza. I take a cast iron skillet and I put all the toppings that I want on my pizza and a good low carb um, marinara sauce, which Rouse is about the best. And hopefully since it was bought out by big food, it won't ruin it and some cheese on it. And I throw it in the oven and I bake it and I eat it with a fork and I don't have a crust. You only put that in a recipe book. I don't, I don't really do that. Um, I don't, I know I always am the one saying don't hate money and if there's a demand for something, but we all have limits on our time. And I've bought a lot of recipe books and I've even mentioned a few of them. And in the end, I'm always let down because I'm always like, okay, this is some bullshit crap or you just repackage sauteing chicken. Like it's the same thing over and over again, vegetables and chicken sauteed. Okay, this one used peppers and that one used eggplant. I don't need a book to tell me that. Be fearless and just cook stuff. Stick to meat, beef, bacon, butter, and eggs as your primary input, and you'll be fine. I'm sorry I don't have a better answer. And if you want to clear that up, John, if I'm missing something from your question, go ahead. You've got time yet if you're still here. Homesteading Heathen. 999 super sticker. Thank you for that. I appreciate it, sir. I'll let you guys know I have turned um, ads back on during streaming. It seems that YouTube's behaving itself a little bit better now and living up to its promises. Now, all my ads should be skippable, and you should see no more than one ad per 30 minutes during a live stream, except somebody helped me figure this out. If you skip the ad, they may give you another one and another one before they give up on that one ad block. So that might be the issue. Um, I don't make a ton of money on YouTube uh, uh, ads, but I make some and it's enough to matter to me. So I really don't want to fully turn them off. But things like homesteading, heathing, throwing me like I'm not going to make 10 bucks off this stream from from ads. If I start seeing stuff, and I'm not an e-beggar, as some people call it, it doesn't need to happen, 
But if this starts happening on a regular basis, I'll just turn the damn things off. I'll also tell you this about the ads that show up in my videos. If you don't watch the live and you watch them right after they publish, good Lord, YouTube, will you please give creators the ability to say, put no more than X ads in this that gone video, because the next morning when they finally insert the ads and I pull it up, there'll be like 15 of them in there. And I go through and delete them and then save it with just three. That's what I always try to do with my long-term videos. But, you know, it's it's better than just gas money. And, you know, I teach not to hate money, so I try not to. And if I was ever harsh to anybody over complaining about it, I'm sorry, because I didn't know YouTube was being the deceitful assholes I should have expected them to be. Gooley says, what are your thoughts on banks being able to seize any secured asset that has a lien on it in the event of a big financial downturn? I think it's scum, but it's real, and you need to understand any property that you own that has a lien against it and, and be prepared for it. But I think that that idea is ridiculous because here's what he's talking about. The concept of having a lien on property is to make sure that the debt against the property is serviced. That's collateral. I have no problem with that. You willingly enter into a contract. You have a piece of property, whether it's real estate or something else. There's a lien against it. A lot of these loans have provisions in them where under certain situations, the financial institution issuing the loan can accelerate the loan and demand payment on the loan. And if they do that, it's going to be a time when you don't just go to another bank and get a different loan and transfer it over because you're in a financially stressed situation. There is a potential for that to be abused. Now, the other side of it is, as scum as they are, you know I don't defend any of them. After what you heard today, you should know that if you didn't already know. There is a point of self-destruction, especially with real property, that if you foreclose on enough property, you destroy the value of all property and you destroy yourself. So there's like a mutually assured destruction there to a degree. The bigger problem with liens on property is sometimes people manage to get liens on your property by pretending to be you and you didn't know it. And that can really hurt you. Uh, King of Biltong, that's Anton, asks, do you see the Rumble rants? And I think he means comments on Rumble. 99% of the time, sir, yes, I do. Usually you'll see me look over here once in a while on another computer. And when I'm looking over here, I'm looking at Rumble. Usually I have a tab open on this computer over here so I can see the comments from Rumble. I do not today because I'm 2.30 before I went live. I got off a panel discussion 20 minutes before I went live today and some things like some links and stuff are missing. But usually I see comments on Rumble and I really wish is because Rumble is actually technically and I'm talking about the technical side of it, a very good platform. It is very stable. The streams work really well. There's a lot of features on it. They've come a long way. Um, with like static live URLs. There's some features they have that YouTube doesn't, but I really wish whoever's running that thing, Dan Bongino, get your boys together and fix this, would get with companies like StreamYard to create the same kind of interaction that we have with Facebook and Twitch, where when you comment, I can see you here in a consolidated environment because it's one, you know, I've said this before. I'm really not bitching. I'm just telling you the truth about the situation it is hard when you're solo as a podcaster to keep up with the interaction in the back office of Streamyard alone 
let alone have some comments here, some comments there, and some comments over here. That's why, you know, if you're on Odyssey, like I love the fact that Odyssey exists. I still stream there. I don't see your comments. There's no way I can add a third screen and, and keep pace with what's going on. Now, when I have a guest, it's pretty easy when they're talking to get caught up and consult and, and, and figure out what's going on. Let's see if anybody else gave me a talking point or a question while we were doing that. Um, Ika Mouse says, adding capsaicin to hot tea before working out in the cold can help your body stay warmer. I, I believe that, but I'm going to stay warm mostly this week by not going out there unless I have to. Uh, I'm not sure that capsaicin would really help my fingers <laughs> when it's seven degrees out and you're dealing with wet stuff. You have gloves on and all, but uh, the gloves I wore today were better than the ones I had two days ago. The ones two days ago froze with my hands inside. I literally ended up having to take it off because I couldn't close my hand. That's how cold it, it got here. Um, Cultimus Maximus says, why don't you raise chickens anymore? The cross you made was beautiful. I don't raise chickens anymore because the cross I made that I called uh, uh, the blue, blue phantom was beautiful. And it was about as feral as a ringneck pheasant. And they decided they didn't want to live in the chicken coop anymore, which in the beginning wasn't that big of a problem. They roosted in trees and whatever, and, you know, bantam eggs aren't that valuable. So, okay, whatever. Well, then they had babies. And this last summer, they had about 80 babies. And I would say a good 30 babies survived hawks and drowning themselves and stuff like that. And so I had 30 young chickens plus a good group of the adult chickens and only a small group that went to the coop. And they decided they wanted to live at night on my porch. They shit on my grill. They shit on my porch. They shit on the eaves. They shit on the, the, the everywhere. And Dorothy and I would go out there and clean it like extensively. And, and three weeks later, it was gross and disgusting again. And I was fed up. But my wife also said the chickens must go. And my wife deals with a lot of crap. And when she specifically asks something of me, if it's in any way reasonable, and this was, she gets what she wants. So this was a joint decision, but it was the command issued from the wife. Chickens must go. And the only downside in this, the only downside in this is that, um, I do not have chickens anymore, not for the eggs or whatever, but coop maintenance. The chickens are really good about occasionally kind of rooting through all of the bedding in the coop. So we might have to have a discussion. I've kind of mentioned it already, and it didn't look like it went over very well. Maybe we need like four female-only, large-breed, dumpy humpy hens that can't get out of because we have the pet porch fenced the porch fenced in with really nice three foot high black fencing. It's really nice looking, but those little chickens can fly. I mean, they flew like you just see one fly across the property, and then you clip their wings and they just slide right through the fence. So we may need to bring them back just for coop maintenance, but we're going to have to come to an agreement before I do it. I don't do things without us agreeing and working in consort together. Uh, King of Biltong says, I gave you a rant on Rumble. I'm wondering if that's like equivalent of like a super sticker or a super chat or something on 
Uh, YouTube, if so, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. And, and Rumble does pay those out when they happen, if that's what you're asking. I just can't see it today because it's not really feasible for me to get that up when I didn't have it up when I started. Anyway, that wraps up uh, that part of the show today. I want to remind you here at the end, uh, if you haven't done so yet, you probably really want to check out the Simplified Bioreactor Composting course that is available at homefoodsystems.com. After the show we did yesterday, composting cover crops and biochar, we had a lot of people sign up. Uh, If you haven't yet, check it out. It's $40, $35 for MSB. It's eight hours of instruction plus two hours of bonus uh, uh, where we actually build one here on the property. It will change forever your ability to grow food for the better. Uh, During my panel today with Matt Powers on his uh, Our Future seminar series, I was asked what the biggest problem is holding up high-quality food production in America and around the world. And I said that no matter how you look at it, from the backyard gardener all the way up to the farmer, whether it's conventional, organic, whatever, everybody's solution is chemical. Even organic, it's still a chemical solution. I don't have enough nitrogen, go get some you know, guano with a guaranteed analysis of X amount of nitrogen in it. That's a chemistry solution. It might be a natural chemical solution. It's still a chemical solution. It's not about feeding the biology in the soil. I have really discovered why what I've been doing for the last few years works the way that it does in the last year. And I, I think I laid it out pretty good yesterday. So if you want to really take charge of growing your own food in a way that, that will radically transform everything, though it is a small, slow solution, it'll take some time to implement, then bioreactor compost is what you want to do. And since it takes a year to fully mature a batch, this would be a good time to learn how to do it and go ahead and get it done so that next spring you have a nice, fresh batch ready to go. And then this year, well, what do you do? Make regular compost, buy good compost, do your best but get the bioreactor cycle going because it, once you get into production, it doesn't matter how long it takes. Um, 400 pounds of this stuff is more than any gardener would need per year. Way more. Way more than you could probably use the way that I teach you to use it. So uh, I talk about buying things when they will pay for themselves. My bioreactor compost course will more than pay for itself. Uh, next of the day, if you like the show and the work that we do. You can always support us by starting your online shopping at tfaz.com. Item of the day is the same one. It was yesterday, the Anchor Astro E7 uh, power backup uh, pack. They're great. You know, they charge your phone about, you know, nine times they'll charge an iPhone. Uh, they'll charge a big, the big Galaxy about six, six and a half times. Uh, I won't say much on it because I said it yesterday, but uh, if you check out the website or you go to tspaz.com, you can easily find the item of the day that way. And as long as you start your shopping there, no matter what you buy, you eventually uh, will help us out. You know, it doesn't even matter if it's what we recommend or not. Just start your shopping there. Check out all the reviews because everything there, I own it. I use it. I bought it with my own money and I would buy it again. I think there's like two items that I was given from the manufacturer out of the whole, like there's like 500 items in the T-Spaz catalog. And those two, it notes, I was given this. I, I believe in integrity. You guys know that. Again, guys, I appreciate you being here with me today. I want to let you know about tomorrow's episode. Stephen Reisner is going to be on. And we're going to be talking about three things. Growing your own food with natural farming. 
aquaponics, and don't go away when I tell you this, AI, artificial intelligence. AI is the devil. Calm down. It's going to be okay. We're mostly going to talk about growing our own food. But the AI tool that he has helped develop is one of the coolest things you will ever hear about. And it's still in beta. It's almost impossible to find. And we'll tell you about it tomorrow. But I'll give you the basics of what it'll do. He demoed it here at our workshop in November. It's pretty amazing. You can say, I live in this city state, and I want to grow these primary crops. What naturally growing weeds and plants exist in my my area that I can harvest to make natural fertilizer for these crops. And it'll tell you how much to get, what to do, and how to put it together and how to use it. As I've been talking about AI over, over the last year, I've said that this is what's going to happen. I'm not that, I mean, chat GPT and other tools like it are great. I'm not that excited about it. I'm excited about the open source work being done, taking pieces of these different tools and tailoring them to do a specific thing because they'll always do that specific thing better than the generalist system will do. Now think about that though. And it's very clear where this is going. That's like stage one of training this model. It's going to get to the point where it's going to be able to tell you how to do all the Korean national farming stuff, all of these things. Jeff Lawton, I I saw his presentation for Matt's thing today. He even talked. Jeff Lawton is talking about AI now. He's like, there will be AI tools someday that you'll be able to say where you are and it will and give it a picture and it will do a permaculture design of your property. You'll probably want to change some things, but how much faster will we be able to go? So tune in tomorrow for that because we're going to blow you away. First of all, Stephen, let me tell you something about Stephen Reiser. I almost don't want him to hear this. I don't want to give somebody too much of a big head. We did a panel discussion. Myself, Nick Ferguson, Matt Powers, and Steven Reisner at the fall workshop. Wasn't even planned. Like after Steven and Matt talked, I'm like, oh, we got to do this. We got an open time. We got to do this. And Nick Ferguson, and, 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 and you're talk, he's talking to me, and Nick Ferguson is not exactly a slow person. He said, and I quote, talking about Steven, that guy opens his mouth, and I feel like an imbecile. I feel like I don't know anything. He's a freaking savant. He is. We'll have him right here tomorrow with me and we'll be talking about how to grow food like you've never done before on your property and a little bit about how to use AI to accelerate the learning process. With that, I'll catch you guys tomorrow with another episode. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way A dollar down, a dollar a month And you never have to pay